Open your Bibles now, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 5. And this evening our study is in verses number 6 through 8 of this fifth chapter, which you may not know, without doubt, is the most controversial part of this letter. There's disagreement about the meaning of verse number 6. There's even more disagreement about verse number 7 and whether it should even be a part of the scriptures. And then there's controversy about verse number 8. Verse number 8 is the subject of a great debate that took place in the early centuries, the first few hundred years of Christianity. And what a person believed about verse number 8 helped to determine if he was a true believer or was a heretic of the rankest sort. Now, we know that John has been dealing with the subject of authentic Christianity, and he has approached that subject from three different avenues, and this letter is quite circuitous and repetitious as John goes through these different approaches to prove whether or not a person is a real Christian. And this letter was written because there were those that opposed the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ and the deity of Christ, and there are certain doctrines that you might not be too sure of and you might not have learned very much about. And you can be saved and you can be confused about those doctrines and what you believe about them is not going to make a difference either way about your salvation. But when it comes to the doctrine of Christ, it is an absolute fundamental of the faith uh, that we understand correctly who Jesus Christ is. And there is no faith in Christ unless we believe that he is God who came to this earth in human flesh and then lived a perfect life, was crucified on the cross, and then arose from the dead. And the Apostle Paul stated that very succinctly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he said, This is the information that you need to know. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and he was buried, and he arose again the third day. Those facts are fundamentals of the faith. Those are absolutely essential to the faith. It is, we have to believe that Jesus was not just a man, but that he was the God-man, and it is through his death on the cross that we have forgiveness of sins. Now, you may remember that John testified to that truth that Jesus was both God and man. In the first chapter, he talked about the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, how they had personally observed his life, and they had touched him, they heard him, they saw him, they witnessed his death and also his resurrection, and their witness of those facts is truth. And they recognized something more about him, not just that God was in him, but that he actually was God. That is the truth of Jesus Christ. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John wrote, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And going back to verse number 5 in the fifth chapter, it is important to know exactly who Jesus is. You can't miss this and be a Christian because John says there, Who is he? that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, there were people that denied that truth. They denied the deity of Jesus. They didn't believe that he was anything more than a man, and a man that had been taken over by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to explain that aspect of the error just a little bit later, 
But suffice it, to, suffice it to say for the moment that these people denied the eyewitness account of the apostles. But worse than that, and much more serious than that, is that they denied the testimony of God. And so we come to this fifth chapter, and each time that John recycles these proofs of Christianity, he digs a little bit deeper hole for the opposition or the critic to crawl out of. In fact, in these verses in chapter 5, he digs this hole so deep that there is no way to climb out of it. And those that are left in the bottom of this hole are the ones that I mentioned just a moment ago. They're the heretics of the rankest sort. Now, just to give you a little bit of a heads up about who falls into such a category or who falls into that hole, this would be people like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and uh, many of the cults or all of the cults that deny the full deity of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you a shortcut to the gist of these verses. Uh, As we read these, I want you to look for the word witness. The key word is the word witness. And the final authority to the identity of Jesus Christ is not the enemies of Christ, of course. It's not Christians that lived in the first century. And it's not even the apostles. The final authority to the identity of Christ is God himself. Now, we look then at 1 John chapter 5. Let's start reading at verse number 5 so we can kind of get into the flow here. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he, or in other words, Jesus, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now John says here that there are witnesses to the truth of the identity of Christ. And we hold the position that verse number 7 is a legitimate part of the text. But even if we didn't have verse number 8 in this chapter, uh, it would still show us, or verse number 7 rather, verse number 8 still shows us that the chief witness of Christ's deity is, is God himself. And before we get into the outline tonight, I'd like to refresh our memory just a little bit on this word witness. And memory is really a good place for us to start because the root of the word here in the scriptures for witness is one who remembers. A witness is one who remembers. One uh, witness in a courtroom is a person who gives testimony to what he's seen and or heard. He remembers what he saw or he heard, and so he tells that to the court. But it's not only in a court of law that we use this word. Uh, Witness is also used in the normal give and take of our lives. A witness is simply someone who reports information. Uh, And that could be to a court of law, but maybe not. It can be just somebody who knows something, who's learned something, and then reports that information to others. And that's more the sense that we have when the Word of God talks about the apostles being a witness There were times when they were called into court, like the Apostle Paul when he appeared before Felix and before Festus. Uh, He was called to give an account and to give a witness, and he did so. But more often when you find the word witness in Scripture, and we talk about the apostles, we're talking about 
information that they related to others concerning Jesus Christ. Information about his grace, information about his saving power. A witness of Christ is simply someone who tells what they know about Jesus. Now, another interesting uh, twist on this word is that it comes from the same word from which we get martyr. And in the sense of preaching the gospel, the martyrs are those that were killed for the witness that they had of Christ. They witnessed about Christ and they were killed for their faith. And so the Greek word that underlines this, underlies this is the word martus, which is the same word from which we get martyr. So where then do we get the most conclusive testimony concerning the deity of Christ? Well, we get that from God. And there is no higher authority. So John leaves this very last argument in this epistle. He brings out the big guns, you might say. And he makes the argument that it is God himself, God Almighty, who declares the full deity of Jesus Christ. Now, how does he do that? How does the Father show us who Jesus is? Well, verse number 6 says, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. So there are three witnesses that we find in this verse. God the Father testifies about Christ in three different ways. John says here he does this by the water and by the blood and by the Spirit. And you may remember that in the Old Testament there was a requirement that testimony had to be established by at least two or three witnesses. And so this is the idea that John has in his mind that he'll just call out three witnesses to the deity of Christ, and these witnesses substantiate what he's written about Christ. Well, that's great information for us to know. And here is where we start to enter into the controversy. Who are these witnesses, or what does this mean? What are the witnesses? Now, we understand spirit fairly well. We're not going to have too much of an argument over this, whether he's talking about the Holy Spirit. I think we understand that. But what does John mean when he says that the water and the blood testify about Jesus? So what we're going to look at tonight is the interpretations of this text, the interpretations of it. And not everybody agrees on this, uh, what does John mean by water and blood? And those expressions are found in both verses 6 and 8. And this is the concluding final authority on Jesus Christ given by God. And if it is, then understanding what John means by this is of paramount importance. Now, it should be readily agreed that it is John's purpose to show the historical fact that Jesus was God incarnate and to discuss the ministry of Jesus upon this earth. But it's also important that we should come to an agreement about how John attempts to do that. And there are good theologians that differ on what these terms mean. But I do think there is a right answer to that. There has to be. And so we're going to examine the meaning of these two expressions this evening. What does John mean by water and blood? Well, there are four main interpretations of this. And I'm going to give you the first three that are the wrong interpretations, and then we'll spend a little bit of time with the last one, which is the right interpretation. So the first wrong interpretation of this is that some people believe that water and blood refer to sacraments. Does John mean sacraments? Now, I think most of you are probably aware that in Berean Baptist Church, we do not have sacraments. A sacrament means 
a visible sign of an inward grace. Now, if that's all that people meant by it, that would be okay. I mean, if that's what they mean, we could agree with that, and uh, we could use that word sacrament without too much trouble. But the problem is that there is a huge segment of Christianity that's gone wrong on the idea of sacraments, and rather than a sacrament being a visible sign of an inward grace, they've switched this thing around to where the sacrament is actually the way in which grace is obtained. And so, in other words, they say that the way that a person is saved is by keeping of sacraments. And because of that, we don't use the word sacrament. Instead, we use the word ordinances. And ordinances, or that word ordinance, properly, more properly refers to the obedience of Christ's commands. Christ has commanded that people in the church or that are coming into the church be baptized. He has commanded that we celebrate or observe the Lord's Supper, and we obey those commandments. Those are ordinances of God. Now, I'm not going to go into all the extra sacraments that Roman Catholicism adds to this mix and calls them a means of salvation, but there are two sacraments or ordinances, sacraments if you use the word properly, two sacraments or ordinances that we believe that the Bible teaches, and those two are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And neither one of those has anything to do at all with obtaining grace. If they, if they did mean that was the way that we got grace, then grace, the meaning of grace itself is blown apart because grace would no longer be free. It would be something we do to earn grace. So some interpret water and blood to be the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they say this is the way that God testifies to Christ. He does it through the sacraments. Now we can agree on this, that baptism has something to do with this equation. But for John to refer to the Lord's Supper as blood would be a very unusual reference. In the Lord's Supper, we have two elements. We have the cup, which represents the blood of Christ, and we also have the bread that corresponds to his flesh. And so why, if uh, John is talking about the Lord's Supper here, why does he only speak about the blood? And why doesn't he also speak of the flesh of Christ? And then also he says that Jesus came by water and blood, and that's a past tense thing. That points to an historical event rather than something that we do in the current time as a perpetual thing until Christ comes again. And that's what both baptism and the Lord's Supper are. They are perpetual ordinances. These are two things that are kept in the church until Christ comes again. And then further, baptism and the Lord's Supper are testimonies of the church. They aren't testimonies by God. Baptism is your testimony. That's the testimony that you have identified with Christ, that you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, and you show that in the picture of baptism. That's your testimony. Then also the Apostle Paul, when he talked about the Lord's Supper, he said, you show the Lord's death till he comes. This is one of the reasons you take it. You show the Lord's death till he comes. And so both of those ordinances are... are, testimonies that we give of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not witnesses that God gives us. And I might also add to this that these two things, baptism and Lord's Supper, are things that should be done. They're ordinances, and we're talking about obedience. And so a Christian ought to be obedient to the Lord. He ought to be baptized, and that ought to be administered properly by a true church of Jesus Christ. 
And then when it comes to the Lord's Supper, that's also important for members of the church. And really, people shouldn't absent themselves from the Lord's Supper when the church observes that because that's commanded by God. And so I've kind of got the feeling that unless you're on your deathbed or something and it's impossible for you to get here, you ought to be here when the church takes the Lord's Supper. But that's not the meaning of water and blood in verses 6 and 8. So that first view is sacraments. And if you're interested, that was the view of Martin Luther. That's what he believed. And anybody that's ever read Luther knows that he was terribly confused on the Lord's Supper and probably even worse or as bad in confusion about baptism. And I don't even think the Lutherans can explain what Martin Luther thought about baptism. That's one of the most puzzling things that I've ever come across is how Martin Luther could believe what he did and then say what he did about baptism. Well, there's another idea that people have, and this is a wrong one as well, that the water and blood refer to the spear in the side of Jesus. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 19. And this is a chapter about the crucifixion of Christ. And there are some who believe that John has reference to this event, and perhaps that would seem logical because this particular thing is recorded only by John in the gospel accounts. This incident is only recorded by John. Now, if you look at John chapter 19, verses 34 and 35, it says, But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. Now, again, we're talking about the crucifixion. Jesus is on the cross. One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, And forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. Now there you see in verse 35, John is speaking of himself. He said, I saw that, I wrote down the record of it, that record is true, I know it's true, and I've said it in order that you might believe. Now, if you have a center reference column in your Bible, or if you're using a study Bible tonight, you might see that John 19, 34, and 35 are referenced in that center column or in a study Bible to 1 John 5, 6, where blood and water are also used. And so what we're talking about here is that when the spear pierced the side of Jesus, that that spear went into the pericardium, that sack around the heart, and when the spear pierced that, there was blood and water that flowed out. Well, what was that a testimony to? Well, it was a very clear affirmation that Jesus was dead. There is no particular significance to the blood and the water there that came from his side except to show that he was already dead. Now, blood is extremely important, as you know, when we talk about the sacrifice of Christ. uh, There had to be blood that was shed. Scripture says that, and there was blood shed. There was blood shed when the nails were driven into his hands and his feet. His blood flowed down. But the spear in the side is is a different matter. I mean, this was an unusual thing that happened to Jesus, and if you've You've probably studied some about the crucifixion and know the, what they did when Jesus was crucified and why it was so unusual for them to treat him in the way that he did. they did. Um, when they came to Jesus, they found that Jesus was already dead. The thieves on either side of Jesus were not dead, but they came to Jesus and found he had already passed away. He had already expired, had given up his life. Now, the thing about crucifixion is that A person who was crucified didn't die from the pain and the suffering. He didn't die because he had nails driven into his hands and his feet. But rather, crucifixion was a long, excruciating death because it was a very slow suffocation. And what would happen is that 
the person on the cross would have to push himself up in order to get a breath so that he could breathe. And as long as he was able to push himself up, he would sustain his life. And so crucifixion would normally take several days for a person to die in that way, and he might die of dehydration and other things such as that. But the key thing there was the suffocating part, not being able to push himself up. Well, the unusual thing about Jesus was that when they came to him, what normally should have taken two or three days for him to die, they found that Jesus was already dead. And they were looking for this because the next day was a Sabbath day. And the law said that no one could be left hanging on a cross on the Sabbath day. And so they wanted to take those bodies down from the cross. So what they would do is they would go to these people that were hanging on the cross. And if they had to hasten their death, they would break their legs. And that breaking of their legs, that excruciating pain, would make it impossible for them to push up, and it wouldn't be very long before they would suffocate. So when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead, the thieves weren't dead, so they broke the legs on the thieves' legs on either side of Jesus. Now, of course, we know that Jesus gave up his own life. It wasn't taken from him, but he gave up his own life. So when they came to Jesus, rather than having to break his legs. They saw he was already dead, so the soldier took the spear and pierced the side of Jesus. Well, when he did, that's when the blood and water flowed out. So we really can't find any significance to the water and blood as being a testimony from God. It was simply proof that Jesus had already died. And, of course, that was a fulfillment of Scripture that they couldn't break the legs of the Lamb of God. That had to be fulfilled exactly as it was. So that soldier didn't entertain the thought of breaking its legs. He used the spear. Now, you'll notice also that in our passage that stress is laid on the fact that it was not water only that John is, is, is talking about here, but he says very clearly, water and blood. Now, would you really need to know that information to prove that Jesus was God? Well, I don't think you'd have to know that there was water that came out of Jesus, would you? And so there has to be some other reason where John, why John is so particular about stressing water and blood. Now, in case you're interested on this one, this was the view of Augustine and ancient commentators that they believe the blood and water referred to the spear in Jesus' side. A third view of this is purifying and pardoning. And this is the view of C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, and also of John Calvin. And this view has a little bit more merit than the other two. And it relates to the Old Testament rites of purification and the offering of a blood sacrifice. Now, the ritual of purification and killing an animal had definite links to the cross of Christ and to the ministry of Christ and uh, tells us something about the cross. And I know that you understand that very well. Old Testament sacrifices had a view towards the death of Christ. And we're saved by the blood of Christ. We are cleansed by his blood and also by his blood we're pardoned. And water signifies purification. Now, I'll take you all the way back. It's been... Uh, I guess it's probably been about six years now, right around there, where we had the series on the tabernacle, and maybe you don't remember about this at all, but there was a labor, a brazen labor that stood right outside the door of the tabernacle, and when the priest had made the sacrifice, when they had killed the animal, they would, they were so many of them were killed much of the time that they had blood all over them, and so they would go to this brazen labor, and they would wash up, and they would 
get rid of the blood that was on them, and then they would be ready to go into the tabernacle. And that washing at the laver was a symbol of purification. And really, it refers to the Word of God, that we're purified by the Word of God, the washing of the water of the Word of God. And so the priest would do that, and after he killed the sacrifice, he would wash up. Now, John does mention forgiveness of sins and cleansing by Christ's blood in the first chapter. That's in verses 7 and 9. And so it's thought that he comes back to that theme here, saying that water and blood in chapter 5 are the witnesses to Jesus Christ in the sense that it talks about purifying and pardoning power of the blood of Jesus Christ. So Calvin and Spurgeon both agreed on water and blood as references to the fulfillment of Old Testament types. And as I said, that's a better view than the first two, but I don't think it's the right view. Uh, It may have a secondary application, and probably it does, but that's not the best explanation of what's meant here. So we go on then to the right meaning, and I think you'll see how this best fits what John is talking about here, that the fourth opinion... And the right one, I think, is that the water and the blood refer to the baptism and the death of Christ. So check mark that one as the right meaning. The water represents the baptism of Christ, and the blood represents the death of Christ. And there are many good commentators that take that view. In fact, it's one that goes all the way back to Tertullian in the 2nd and the 3rd centuries. Now, if you think about the two most important events that happened in the life of Christ, it would have to be the beginning of his public ministry and the end of his public ministry. Now, when Jesus began, he fulfilled messianic prophecies and healing people and casting out demons and controlling nature. He saved people. That's part of his ministry. And as the scripture said, the Messiah would preach good tidings to the poor, that he would heal the brokenhearted, he would proclaim liberty to those that were captives of sin and Satan. And Jesus did all of those things during his earthly ministry, but he didn't do them until there was a certain event that took place in his life. How did Jesus start? Well, for 30 years, from his birth to becoming an adult, he was growing, he was learning, he was preparing, he increased in wisdom and stature, the Word of God says, and then he was inaugurated into his ministry. Well, how did that officially commence? Well, we all know that he was baptized by John the Baptist. Now, before Jesus was baptized, he didn't do anything. We don't have any record of Jesus preaching. There's no record that he ever healed anyone. He worked for Joseph as a carpenter. He wasn't even very well known. Nobody knew who Jesus was until he was baptized. In fact, he was so nondescript that when Jesus began to preach and was teaching and healing, the people said, where did that come from? How's that guy doing all that stuff? I mean, isn't this one of Joseph's many sons? How is it that he teaches the word of God? How is it that he heals people? How can he raise people from the dead? I mean, this was a total surprise to them that Jesus was able to do these things. So John the Baptist was preaching in the desert, and Jesus' ministry was about to begin, and so he reached the appointed time, and there needed to be a blast-off, so to speak, to that ministry. 
And so he was given an official send-off by God the Father. So he came to John the Baptist while he was preaching in the wilderness. And there John was preaching about repentance from sin. He was telling people that the kingdom of God was coming, that it was very near to them. He kept telling them, someone is coming, someone is coming, and this person's coming with a greater ministry than I have. And this person that's coming is greater than I am. He is so high and holy that I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. Now remember, the people regarded John the Baptist as a great prophet of God. And John tells them, somebody greater than me is coming. So John prepared the people for Christ. And then right at the moment where God wanted this to happen, Jesus went to John while he was baptizing. And he went up to him and he said, John, baptize me. And John didn't want to do it. He thought it was backwards. I mean, John thought that he should be the one that was baptized by Jesus and not the other way around. But Jesus said to John, John, you need to do this because it fulfills righteousness. And it was at that time that Jesus began to identify with the sins of the people. Now, John had been baptizing for the repentance of sin. And of course, Jesus had no sins to repent of. And so uh, he began to identify with those sins of the people by showing what he would do for sin. So he said, John, baptize me. And that baptism was a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection. So Jesus was showing what he was about to do for their sins. He would die, and then he would arise from the grave. So John took Jesus, and he put him under the water. Then he brought him back up. And then there was this powerful witness, a booming testimony that came from God the Father. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, it says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so when John says he came by water, he's referring to that baptism of Jesus and the testimony that God gave at his baptism. So God spoke. This is when God put the stamp of approval on Jesus' ministry. And so that's how it began. It begins with a powerful witness from God the Father. This is my son. Here's the one you need to listen to. He is the Messiah. But then we go on in verse number 6, and we read here that Jesus came not by water only, but by water and blood. And so now John brings in the second great event in the life of Christ, and that was the stunning end to his life. Now at first, there's that powerful inauguration of his ministry at the baptism, and then there was a powerful end to Jesus' ministry. And so when John says the blood is the witness of Christ, there he's referring to his death. Now, to the onlookers that were there when Jesus was crucified, there didn't seem to be any power at all in Jesus' death. I mean, he was taken and nailed to a cross as a criminal. He was rejected by men. He was even rejected by his father for a while. He was rejected as he paid for the sins of people. And in those three bitter hours that Jesus hung on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m., there was a great darkness that came over the entire earth. Now, I know that some people believe that that was a local darkness, that it just happened in that one particular spot. I don't believe that. I believe that the entire world was darkened 
when Jesus was crucified on the cross. And that was darkened so that men could not look upon Jesus as he propitiated the wrath of God and expiated the guilt of believers. So when Jesus died, God gave a testimony to his deity. And it wasn't just the darkness that came, there was also a great earthquake. And if you remember, the Bible says that the veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And um, when we were studying about the tabernacle, that's also something that we discussed, that this veil that was in the tabernacle and the temple was a very tightly woven cloth that it would be impossible to pull apart, even with a team of horses pulling on each side. You couldn't pull it apart. And yet, in the temple, this veil was ripped from the top to the bottom, and that was done by the hand of God. And so Jesus was crucified, he was put into the grave, and then something else happened. God raised him from the dead. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. So Paul says, God raised up Christ. And so there we see at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, God, who is the final authority, testified to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice something else about verse number 6. Jesus came by water and blood, and then John adds again, not by water only, but by water and blood. Now, why do you suppose that John inserts this emphatic note here that it's not by the water only? but by water and blood. Well, this will take us back to something that we learned in the first chapter. The false beliefs that John combats in this epistle are not forgotten. They're continually arising as we go through epistle, this epistle. And its purpose in this letter is to distinguish between false teachers and true Christians. So John wrote to refute this heresy concerning the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ as it was wrongly taught by a group of Gnostics that were called the Serinthians. Now, chapter 5, verse number 5, says that true believers overcome, and these are the ones that believe the record that the apostles gave of Christ and also believe this testimony that we find here in verses 6 through 8. But the Serinthians refuse to believe these testimonies. Well, these were people that taught that Jesus was just a man, that one day this man, Jesus came to be baptized by John. And when he came to be baptized, then the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, went into this man named Jesus, and then he empowered him to do the works of Christ. So in their opinion, the baptism was the point of the signification that God was with him. The Spirit then descended upon him and went into him, and at that point God was with him. And so that's what enabled him to do these mighty, wonderful works He was just a man that the Spirit of God had overtaken. But then it came time for the Spirit to leave him. And the purpose of God had been fulfilled through Jesus' life. And so then the Spirit of God left him. And that's when this man, Jesus, was crucified. 
Now, you have to understand that with this Greek philosophical background that these Gnostics had, it was impossible, nearly impossible for them to believe that anybody that had God in them could actually be crucified, put to death. They could die. And certainly they didn't believe that God could die, and they they didn't see any way possible that could happen, or that God would even think about taking on human flesh. That was too far beyond their understanding. And so they taught that God's Spirit left this man, Jesus. And so Jesus died on the cross as an ordinary man. And some of them were even teaching that he died as an ordinary sinful man. What happens if Jesus is an ordinary sinful man? Well, one thing that happens is we don't have the divine Son. And without the divine Son, there is no such thing as the Trinity. There is no eternal Son of God. And if we lose that, then we lose the doctrine of the Trinity. And if he was not the Son, the divine Son, and just an ordinary man, and the Spirit left him at his death, then we don't have an atoning sacrifice. Now, this is not an insignificant error because Christian doctrine, Christian theology, and the uniqueness of Christianity rest on this fact that God made a sacrifice for sin and that sacrifice was his own son who was indeed God. And you take away that, you don't have anything left. You don't have anything left but a man-made, self-exalting religion. So man is not actually made righteous by faith in atoning sacrifice but he becomes righteous by his own efforts. And that is essentially the basis of all false religions. It's not an insignificant error. And this is the very reason why that we cannot accept Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and the cults as representing any true part of Christianity. And that's because there is no atonement of God in that system. And the Jehovah Witnesses in particular teach that Following Jesus is simply a matter of living by his ethical standards. And we ought not to be confused and thrown off track by their blasphemous use of the name Jesus because they don't believe in the same Jesus of the Bible. And the Mormons are the same way. They don't know the Jesus of the Bible. And so when they put on their signs in front of their churches, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, don't be fooled by that blasphemous use of Jesus' name because they don't believe that Jesus was the divine God who died on the cross. They believe he died, no question about that, but they essentially have the same heretical notions as these Corinthians had 2,000 years ago that the Apostle John preaches about in this very passage of Scripture. And so the point here is that if you destroy the blood sacrifice of Christ, then you're left with lies and deceit that lead people into hell. And there were people that were dying and going to hell in the time of John because they believed such things, and there are people dying and going to hell today because they believe the very same errors. So people are led away by false teachers that try to ruin the truth of the atoning sacrifice of God. And Satan is always trying to destroy that truth. He's always trying to destroy the truth of the water and the blood. He attempts to turn people away from God and from his atoning sacrifice. But Jesus Christ is eternal God. And he went to the cross as God, and he died for sin as God. 1 John 2, verse 2, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That simply means that he is the satisfaction to God for sin. So John says in these last verses in this part of chapter 5. Hold on just a minute here. 
Those of you that think that Jesus came by water only and not by the blood are also wrong because he was God when he was baptized. That's not the part that they were disputing. They believe that that the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus when he was baptized. They weren't disputing that he was God when he was baptized. And so this is why John says, He came not by water only, but by water and blood. And the effect of that is to say he was God also when he was on the cross. There is no such thing as the Spirit of God departing from him because the time that he was born in Bethlehem in a manger, he was God. God, he, not only is God in him, he is God. And he remained God all the way throughout his life, even to the crucifixion of the cross. And so John says he came not by water only, but I by water and blood. So do you see the distinction here and why John emphasized that? The witness of God is the greatest authority that of who Jesus is to his identity. And there was God right there in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. At the time that he was baptized, declaring that he has, a full, he has full deity, <clears throat> that he is the eternal son, that he is one with the Father. And folks, we do have a trinity. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are one in essence, one in power, and one in authority. Now, in the next lesson, we're going to come back to this, and we're going to talk more specifically about the work of the Holy Spirit and how that, in the next two messages, really, we'll deal quite a bit with that and how the Holy Spirit makes known to us, in a very special way, who Jesus is. And then we're also going to look at this seventh verse and the controversy concerning it. And uh, if you want to make a little notation about that, the controversy is called the Johannine comma, the Johannine comma, and we're going to talk about that next week. So John closes the letter in these verses, and really when we get down to verse through verse number 12, which we'll get in a few weeks down the road, uh, verse number 12 is really the closeout of the doctrinal portion, and this is the final part of that doctrinal portion, which shows an irrefutable witness of God as to the identity of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time we've had to be here tonight and to look into your word, how important these doctrines are to our faith. Uh, we have no Savior. We have no faith at all, faith in nothing that would ever count for anything. If Jesus Christ is not truly your son, if he's not eternal God, and if he's not right now in heaven sitting on the throne, directing everything that happens in our lives, well, we pray that you would bless your people for coming to this Bible study tonight, and we thank you, Lord, for the truths that you've opened up to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.